News Power Hour. It's a warm welcome to you. I'm Alec Hogg. This being the last time that the Power Hour is out before the local elections on November the 1st, I had the chance to catch up earlier today with our colleague Tim Modisa. He has seen elections come and go. He's on the ground here in Johannesburg. He's got a very, very good feeling for the way things might pan out. Well, I'm not going to let the cat out the bag. That's coming up in just a little while. But I have no doubt that you're going to be very surprised at what Tim is very confidently predicting is going to happen on November 1 here in Johannesburg. Also today, a landmark decision coming out in the whole Steinhoff affair. Uh, we will be talking to Bernard Mostert, one of the uh, protagonists trying to get Steinhoff liquidated. If you're owning Steinhoff shares, it's not good news. And then my colleague Justin Rowe Roberts has had a busy day as well. Uh, you had two fascinating interviews, Justin. Just uh, give us a little teaser. Yeah, first one was, was with Pete. Where we discussed uh, the PGM miners going into Mania, three big acquisitions from three of the big precious metals producers. So lots of interesting content then. Then we bring up Avenger Alec. I did tell Pete that it's an inclusion into the business portfolio, a rather big stake at 8%. The single single largest initial buy, um, Pitt is a big fan. I must tell you, and then Pitt for uh, this is, huh? Yes, mm-hmm. Pitt for you. So he's still he's still happy. He's still he, he isn't calling us crazy yet. He isn't calling us crazy. And then we also talk about AB Imbev, and it just seems by that Pitt for Yun's counterpoint value fund is going from strength to strength. It's a, it's already at a great twenty twenty one, and there's still two months remaining. And then. The interview after that was with Stephen Van Collar. Obviously, EOH is a very interesting situation. They've had lots of legacy issues, and Stephen's been at the helm now for three years. He says now's the time that they can look to bear the fruit of the last three years. It's been a lot of turmoil for the company, but they seem to be coming out the other end stronger. So maybe that's another one we need to be looking at. These fallen angels, when they do get things right, as we see in Avenge, had you been in Pitfull Yun's camp, you'd have been buying the shares at $0.02. Cents. They're now $0.06, cents and that's all very cheap. Maybe EOH, uh, Justin, does it tickle your fancy? Yes, possibly. I haven't had a greater look, but from what uh, Stephen Van Collar was saying, lots of exciting things happening there. They've got two more remaining legacy issues, and he says once those are out the way, hopefully in the next 6 to 12 months, it's going to be an exciting time for EOH. Well, let's pick up now on the exciting time on the Biz News Network front, Jared Neves. Uh, I know you've been writing a lot of stories, Jared. Are the com- is the community uh, consuming them as well as you can tell us uh, what the consu- what our community are watching and listening? Well, today on our website, uh, Nando's chickened out to cancel culture. Stephen Nathan on Portfolio Construction and Avenge, and the Biz News Share Portfolio Update are the best Jed stories. And on Biz News TV on YouTube, the Biz News Share Portfolio proved popular with viewers there too, uh, with yesterday's flash briefing and Peter Major on Sabanye's recent cautionary announcement following closely. Then on Biz News Radio on Spotify, yesterday's Power Hour, the Spear Reed CEO Quinton Rossi on the benefits of being Western Cape focused, and Peter, Ma- Peter Major on Implat's proposed buyout of Royal Buffer King Platinum are the most listened to podcasts. Our community know you for being our motoring correspondent. What car are you driving right now, Jared? What are you going to be telling us about soon? I've currently got a lovely Turbo Blue Audi A540 TDI parked outside. A turbo blue. Yes, that's the color. Okay. So it, IDs don't go fast enough. They need to put a turbo in them to go even faster. <laughs> well, no, this is a diesel, turbo diesel, of course, but the color is named turbo blue. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, we look forward to uh, reading and hearing more about that in due course. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, just ahead of a long weekend, uh, Nadia, another long weekend. Although living in Cape Town, long weekends are, are kind of just normal fare for you guys, isn't it? 
Well, they say if we're any more laid back, we'll fall off this, like the face of the earth. But, you know, you, you know we're not complaining. <laughs> indeed, <laughs> indeed. Anyone who lives in, in Cape Town exactly. isn't complaining. I hope you're getting out to vote, even though yes. it does seem to be a foregone conclusion in the Cape. Uh, on Monday, uh, the 1st of November, uh, and enjoy the public holidays. I'm sure all of our listeners will. We won't be having a power hour on Monday, being a public holiday, but we'll be back as per usual on Tuesday. Before we get to any of that, though, we have your news headlines. So the 2021 election could usher in a massive shift in SA's political landscape with the ANC for the first time admitting before an election that it is preparing for coalition talks, while the DA has signaled its willingness to cooperate with the ruling party. In an unprecedented move, Acting Secretary General Jesse Duarte told journalists that the ANC has already identified parties with which it is not willing to enter into agreements in line with its ideological standpoint. She did not name these parties. A DA insider said the party has to consider what is best for the country, and in some cases that may mean working with the governing party despite their competition, which has at times been marked by animosity. An ANC and DA tie-up could be a game-changer in the electoral space. Transnet National Ports Authority, which manages all eight commercial ports in SA, is looking to increase tariffs by up to 24% in the 2022-2023 financial year, a move that has irked industry players and the Western Cape Provincial Government, which say the proposed above-inflation hike cannot be justified. The port's regulator of SA, which is tasked with regulating and promoting access to ports and to the facilities and services they provide, is currently assessing Transnet's tariff hike application, and a final decision is expected in December or January. SA's port charges are excessive by global standards and have long been identified as an impediment to business. And Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon tried to assure South Africans that the lights would be on for Election Day, saying that load shedding would not disrupt voting. Gordon hastily called the briefing on load shedding after the country moved to Stage 4 on Wednesday due to further breakdowns at ESCOM power stations. The ANC condemned the load shedding, despite South Africa's power crisis happening entirely under its governance. The ANC has also said that load shedding could be an act of political sabotage. Gordon noted that the hundreds of mobile generators have been rolled out to election stations in case of a power emergency on election day. And now it's on to Justin for the market report. The JSE All Share Index was up at 67,800. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand 16 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 87 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 65 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,801 an ounce. A Kruger Rand will cost you around 28,500 Rand. Brent crude is lower at $83.90 a barrel, and one Bitcoin will cost you 927,000 Rand. In the financial news, embattled ICT group EOH, which is struggling to put a governance scandal behind it, says it is pleased with its progress in selling off non-core assets and closing out loss-making legacy contracts, posting its first operating profit in 2021 since its turnaround strategy began. The group generated 140. 7 million in operating profit in its year ending to July from a loss of 1.3 billion rand previously, turning positive for the first time since 2018, in spite of continued pressure on revenue. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Thursday, October 28th, and this is your FT News Briefing. An activist hedge fund has called on Royal Dutch Shell to break itself up. And Israel's coalition government seems united for now. Plus, private markets have become massive, but their lack of transparency is causing concern in some quarters. Some regulators are worried that bigger chunks of the economy are going dark, as they put it. As more and more economic activity migrates into private markets, that they get less visibility into what's going on there. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Activist hedge fund Third Point came out swinging yesterday. It called on Royal Dutch Shell to break itself up and said the oil supermajor is bogged down by an incoherent strategy. 
A source told the FT that Third Point has built up a large stake in Royal Dutch Shell that's worth about $750 million. Here's the FT's U.S. Energy Editor, Derek Brower. This is a pretty big deal. I think after the engine number one activist battle against ExxonMobil that we all heard about earlier this year, this is the next big effort by an activist shareholder to take on big oil. And um, after ExxonMobil, they don't come bigger than Royal Dutch Shell. So Derek, why is Third Point doing this? Well, it argues, and I think lots of shareholders have made this point about Shell in the past, that its structure uh, doesn't really serve its purpose. It serves the purpose of investors. And what they mean by that is that it's just too big. It's got too many different arms. And now that the energy transition is something that Shell says it wants to be a participant in, Third Point is arguing that Shell needs a strategy to handle that. And the strategy, it says it should adopt to handle that is to break up and have one company handling the legacy, what it describes as legacy oil and gas assets, refining upstream and so on. And another one that can attract a lower cost of capital to finance clean energy projects. Derek, could this actually happen? Well, I don't think Shell is going to say, hey, we've got a hedge fund that tells us to break up, so we're going to break up. What it will do, I think, is try to reiterate that it has a strategy for the energy transition Uh, And its strategy is about unwinding its oil and gas over time, reducing its emissions and focusing on renewable energy. The problem here for big oil in general is that activists are kind of calling the bluff. They're saying the energy transition is actually a serious thing, folks. It's not something that you can just um, tell us you're going to deal with through a bunch of press releases about what you're going to do with renewable energy in 10 years time. This is actually a force that will reshape your entire business. And that's what engine number one told ExxonMobil, and that's what Third Point is telling Royal Dutch Shell. Derek Brower is the FT's U.S. energy editor. He's based in New York. Israel's coalition government, which was formed in June after two years of political gridlock, includes parties from across the political spectrum. And for the first time, an Arab-Israeli party. They came together to keep Benjamin Netanyahu out of office. The former prime minister is on trial for corruption, but hopes to return to power. Johanan Plesner is with the Israel Democracy Institute and says the coalition may be stable for now. As long as they look backwards, they remember the political crisis. They remember Netanyahu that is looming out there with his ultra-Orthodox allies ready to kick them out of power. And that brings them together. Once they become more comfortable in their ministerial seats, and feel like the government is stabilized, I think some of the inherent fissures and discrepancies and differences within this coalition might begin to emerge. That was Johanan Plesner, president of the Israel Democracy Institute, talking to Gideon Rockman in the latest episode of the Rockman Review. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Investor money has poured into private markets in recent years. We're talking venture capital, private equity, real estate, and other investments that are not publicly listed. Morgan Stanley estimates that private markets are now worth $8 trillion. But the FT's global finance correspondent, Robin Wigglesworth, says that the rush into private capital could leave investors disappointed or worse. He joins me to talk more. Hey, Robin. Hi, how are things? Things are great. Good to have you back. Robin, how did private markets get so big in the first place? Well, private markets have been around for as long as you know ownership has been around. But we can see the private equity industry really started gaining prominence in the 80s, venture capital around the same time. Uh, but it's in the last decade that things have really exploded. You know, private equity has gone from, you know, an industry of, of you know, daring buccaneers to being a huge institutional industry in its own right. Uh, these are giant firms that invest in thousands of companies and employ millions of people around the world. And I think that the attraction has been increased by the fact that bond yields are so low. So if you're a pension plan or an insurance company or a private bank or a sovereign wealth fund in the Gulf, you want to have a certain return target. You might want to make seven or eight percent a year. And you're not going to get that from the bond market. And you might not get that from the stock market as much in the future either. So that's why private capital, with its quite often double-digit returns, becomes not just a nice-to-have, but a must-have 
in any sort of broader allocation for you to hit those targets. Now, Robin, not to put you on the spot here, but would you, in all seriousness, would you be happy if your pension fund invested in private markets? That's a great but tricky question to answer. Um, Yes, I think unavoidably private markets is and has to be a major component of any pension plan, uh, purely because there is so much economic activity in private markets. Think about real estate. In many ways, you know, real estate, private companies, that's where a lot of the economic action is these days. And that pension plans have exposure to that makes perfect sense. Robin, worst case scenario, if there were a crisis in private markets, you know, could it ripple out to the broader economy? Uh, completely. I mean, the, the private markets is still part of the economy. Uh, you know, it's the, what is the difference between a major company listed on the stock market and a major company that just is private? It's still a major employer. And if that company goes bust for all sorts of reasons, then that is something that can ripple. I think that a lot of regulators are starting to ask is, is there so much money now in private markets and the other interlinkages, they're so big and the whole ecosystem so large as a whole that problems there, are they obscured from the sites of regulators and can a major setback ripple into, let's say, the mainstream bond markets or equity markets? And I think the worrying thing is that we just don't know. Robin Wigglesworth is the FT's global finance correspondent. Thanks as always. Thanks for having me. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me for today's Market Insights is Pete Fillion. A host of M&A activity between the precious metals producers this week alone, Sabanya, Impala, African Rainbow Minerals today, announcing proposed acquisitions and or takeovers. Let's start with Sabanya, looking to benefit from metals that will play an influential role in the green economy going forward. I spoke to Peter Major on Tuesday and Wednesday. He was a bit skittish of the deal. What are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I, one always gets worried about um, commodity producers when they start doing M&A, uh, although I do think if one looks at the range of transactions that have been announced over the past week or so, by and large, they're mostly sensible. Um, and even Sabanya has, for quite a while, uh, spoken about their strategy to get involved with uh, green metals, because um, that is definitely a trend that is going to be playing out over the next 20 to 40 years is uh, the green economy and infrastructure around the greening of the economy. So to get on board that trend, I think is 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 not crazy. The prices they're paying for the assets are not crazy prices. Um, so I think it's the start of the or the beginning of the top of the cycle, but it's not the top of the cycle yet. Um, the, the, nobody's paying crazy prices for stupid assets. Uh, the deals all make sense uh, from a strategic point of view, and the prices are not over the top. So I, I don't think these transactions signify a top of the, in the cycle at this point in time. Although Pete did cast a bit of doubt over Sabanya's proposed acquisition, he did say Impala's uh, proposed buyout of Royal Buffer King made complete sense um, from a synergies perspective and that, consoli that consolidation would create. Do you agree with this? Um, I agree with uh, the Impala RBP transaction. I think that that uh, it makes a lot of sense for both parties. Um, the Sabanya transactions, I think the first thing one should realize is that in the life of Sabanya, they're not massive. They're not transformational transactions. Um, they're fairly small relative to the size of Sabanya. Um, so, again, even if he's possibly paying a little bit too much to get involved in those metals, it's not going to drag the whole ship down. He's not taking on lots of leverage. Um, he's got lots of cash flow, lots of cash in the balance sheet that he can use. So, uh, you know, I don't think he's introducing financial risk into the business. And these are also not transformational transactions, which is probably a good thing. So I'm not that worried about it. And, and also one has to 
give Neil Frenemann, the CEO of Sibanya, credit. Over time, most of the transactions he's done have turned out well. So he's got a very good track record. Uh, and I think um, that is something one needs to think about as well. Long for Life came out earlier today. They said that they're progressing in talks with their prospective acquirer. Given the pace of delistings in the small cap space, possibly indicative of valuations that these businesses trade at, it must be notably harder for JSE fund managers like yourself to find opportunities given the smaller or the ever-increasingly smaller investment universe. Yeah, look, the investment universe is shrinking, but there's still a lot of really good businesses listed on JSE. Um, I think if you're managing uh, 50 billion rand, you might have problems. Um, but if you're managing a sensible amount of money, um, then uh, there are still tremendous opportunities. And the small cap sector has done fantastically well over the past year or two. Um, so I think it, and it's still not expensive. You know, there's still many buyouts happening and buyouts happen or taking privates happen when companies are undervalued. They don't happen when they're overvalued. They definitely happen when they're undervalued. You get lots of IPOs when, when valuations are high because business people know the value of their assets much better than fund managers or the man on the street. So when you have lots of IPOs, you can generally say that assets are overvalued and the business people are getting, you know, that's why they're selling via IPO. And when, when there are lots of taking privates like there are at the moment in the small cap sector, Assets are generally undervalued because the business people who are taking them private know what they're getting and know what they're paying for that, and they're not overpaying. AB InBev up almost 10% on their results today, a huge increase in value given that size of the business. In the results, South African bureaus or SAB commented that Carling Black Label sales were particularly good. Two-part question, is this a company that you follow, Pete, and have you been contributing to the outperformance of Carling Black Label? Uh, the question one, yes. Question two, no. Um, I prefer wine. <laughs> but uh, in terms of question one, yes, it is one of the top 10 holdings in the Counterpoint Value Fund. Um, I think it is a, a business which is highly leveraged uh, and it sells a product that people want. Uh, and as it pays off the debt over the next 10 years, um, the value of the equity will, I think, has a chance of showing exponential returns. Uh, and I think this is step one in that process where you know, the earnings came out much better than the market expected, and they go, they're going to um, reduce the debt in the business. Uh, and in terms of the enterprise, even if the enterprise value stays the same, the value of the equity will go up. And I actually think the enterprise value could also go up. So I think you could see exponential returns from equity in this business over the next 10 or 20 years. And that, that is one of the strategies I think that, um, at least to me, makes sense is to buy the equity of highly leveraged businesses if you expect. Uh, inflation to be higher uh, over the over the long term, and real interest rates to remain negative. Um, I think these guys can pay off the debt quite easily, um, and uh, and thereby increase the value of the equity in the business. Staying on the beverage theme, I read rumours this morning that the PIC wants two hundred and a share for Distel from Heineken. Is Distel worth this value? Um, it's it's hard to say. I. I I think 200 is quite a rich price. Uh, you know, um, Heineken might pay that because in their life it's probably not that big, uh, but that is quite a rich valuation for a business which generates fairly good returns, but it's, it, it's not, it doesn't, you know, it hasn't done fantastically well over the past 10 years or so. Uh, it's a good business, but it hasn't shot the lights out. So 200 Rand is uh, it's quite a high valuation. If I can get that, I would, I would if I own the Star shares, which I don't, or my funds don't, I would sell them at turn rent for sure. High prop and growth point have both recently come out with comments on their bearish outlook for South Africa. Do you think either private property investment or exposure through a REIT will provide meaningful returns in the next three to five years? Generally, no, I don't think so. I think um, there are a couple of factors at play here. First of all, I think REITs are not great structures um, in terms of owning assets. Because they have to pay out such a high proportion of the income, there is oftentimes very little left for the maintenance of the properties and the upkeep of the properties. So you'll find that those properties, the value of the properties that the REITs own declines over time. And the REITs were nice when people wanted income and paid a premium for income, but I think those days are over now. So the structure, I think, is problematic. Um, the, the, the other points, the more fundamental points, are that 
I think uh, because of the high prices that South African property traded up up until about three or four years ago, um, the sector became massively overtraded. Um, you know, everybody developed a new mall somewhere or a new office block somewhere. So I think the supply of office and retail space has completely overshot um, demand. Uh, I, I saw stats, uh, I think it was a two, three years ago, that uh, per capita, South Africa had the highest amount of retail space uh, in the world, which I, it just strikes me as completely illogical. And, you know, when all these overseas companies are coming to list their property uh, shares on the JC, like Capital Counties, Hammerson, all these, you know, were listing in South Africa as if, and, and people here were just buying these shares because they were so in love with property. That was just a sign of the times. So, so the market's overtraded. So there's that headwind. And then there's the headwind of um, economic, uh, the fact that the economy is not growing. Um, load shedding and other things are contributing to a decline in the economy. So trading um, will be disappointing, I think, over the next few years. So, so property, especially in the REIT format, faces substantial headwinds, uh, and they're not priced cheaply anymore. I mean, they've had a strong run-up, and I think they're, they're generally not priced cheaply. There are some stubs here and there which, which might offer value, but generally, I don't think there's value in, in REITs at, at this point. Lastly, Pets, Alec added a venge to the business portfolio earlier this week. <laughs> he bought 15 million shares at six cents. Uh, it's the single largest initial investment at 900,000 rand, which constitutes 8% of the portfolio. I know you've been bullish for a while, but at six cents, Alec wanted to ask me, is that a good investment? Um, look, I, I think Avenge is, uh, could be a good investment um, if we have an infrastructure cycle picking up in South Africa over the next five years, then I think Avenge could turn out to be a really good investment. I think globally we will definitely have infrastructure, infrastructure spend, and I think Avenge, given their... Uh, offshore entities will benefit from that. And locally, if the mining sector continues to grow, um, Avenge will also benefit from that in, in, the fact, in the sense that a large portion of the business uh, provides service to mining companies. So, so I think there's a, there's, a, there's a likelihood that it can turn into a, a good investment uh, from six cents onwards. Um, you know, it's, it's not expensive. Uh, I, I think it does need to consolidate the shares because, you know, the trading five cents, six cents, uh, it's quite a spread, you know, it's a 20% spread. So um, once they consolidate the share uh, number of shares, um, then I think one will uh, it will trade more reasonably. But I think longer term, I'm very comfortable with Venge. I, I still own the Venge in the fund in the Counterpoint Value Fund. Tim Odessa, you have seen things come and go over many decades of politics here in South Africa. We've got this a big election coming up. How are you reading it relative to other elections? We hear some people saying it'll be watershed, it'll be a completely different South Africa that comes after November 1. I think, uh, yeah, it's going to be very different because uh, it's uh, issues-driven this time around and the issues are different from one place to the other. Um, the issues in Gauteng uh, would be different from, let's say, the municipalities in the Northwest or in the Eastern Cape. So, you know, the messaging of the pol different political parties, the major ones, has had to change from one place to the other. So the the contest focusing on the metros in Gauteng, for instance, um, in Johannesburg, the electricity issue in Soweto is going to be a major factor. And I think many voters are going to be thinking about that, having that in mind when they go to vote, which means typically the ANC supporters based in a place like Soweto are very much unhappy with the way they've been treated by the government and the lack of supply of electricity. So they're likely to move to the opposition parties. Which one? Um, I think they're likely to go with Action SA predominantly. I'm and getting that feedback. Yeah. I, the I, polls don't tell us, but I'm getting that feedback on the ground. I think, uh, yeah, Action SA is going to benefit from the problems of electricity in uh, in Joburg in particular. And then in Tswane, Pretoria, the issue there is a problem of water. Again, the beneficiary thereof is going to be Action SA, even though the profile of the candidate there is not the same as that of Herman Mashaba here in Johannesburg. And of course, in Joburg, the fact that there's a lot of media, you know, so, so we, we get to know more about uh, uh, politicians and uh, high profile people. 
in Twani, you know, the, the profiling of the politicians there is less than it is in Joburg. The ANC and EFF, for instance, have not fielded any mayoral candidates, have not mentioned who they are putting up as their candidates. Whereas DA and Action SA may benefit from the fact that people have got a sense of who they will be voting for as mayor. So I think that that will help count in their favor. You've interviewed the major parties' mayoral candidates. I did the interview with Herman. You did the interview with ANC and and DA. Mm -hmm. But knowing now what you've said about Action SA, who made the strongest case of those three for the average listener? Well, I think uh, the DA candidate made a, a strong case. And the, again, messaging-wise, you know, she was very articulate, very clear about what they want to do as the DA in Joburg. Uh, but I think uh, the DA has been harmed or affected by the other issues in KZN, for instance, the you know the, the posters that they put up there, and the impression that people have that it's still predominantly a white party that uh, has a propensity to get rid of strong black people who are in leadership positions, that does not sit well with uh, with a lot of people. So I've had people comment saying that she may be a great candidate, but how long is she going to last within the organization? So that's sort of the downside for, for the DA. In terms of the ANC, I would not, I mean, he's the current mayor, Pomwe Rani, but he's not necessarily their candidate, you see. So he's in a holding position. And, and therefore could only talk about what the ANC is doing currently and intends doing in the future. But the question then that people would ask is, why in the future if they've been in charge all along until, until right now? How do they rationalize the fact that they don't have a mayoral candidate? You know, the internal politics of the ANC is what's determining that. They did not want to have factional tensions, so to speak, because if they put one candidate over the other, then the, their concern... And was half the party is going to vote uh, for action, is it? Yeah, or will not even <laughs> send volunteers, will not participate yeah. in the campaign. In fact, it's very telling that it's the president of the ANC, the president of the country that has been sent around as the face of the local government elections throughout the country. Exactly. And, and it's got to do with what's going on within the organization. You see. So if they put up Candidates, not only in Joburg or in Swane, but everywhere else as, as mayoral candidates, that would lead to very fractious uh, kind of tensions within the local branches of, of the ANC. So the one unifying figure of the organization currently is the president. Musi Maimani and One South Africa Movement, you haven't mentioned them yet. Are they making any inroads in particularly Gauteng? I think what is uh, the role, the, if, if, if some of the candidates that are standing as independents under the One South Africa Movement is that of Kingmaker. I think their strategy is to, to cut a deal with particularly either the Action SA or, or DA crowd more than with the ANC or EFF crowd because for some reason my, my sense is that people begin are beginning to see the ANC and EFF as more or less one thing you know the, the it's it's the different uh, tendencies of the same politics and the attitude from the DA and and the action SA including the independents is that they would not necessarily want to work with either of the two meaning ANC and EFF. So coalition politics looks likely, and, and maybe let's start with Johannesburg, because it is the biggest city and it is yeah. the commercial center, yeah. uh, that any one party will get over 50%. I, I doubt very much. I doubt in Joburg that the, there's any party that's going to get more than 50% here. I doubt. Um, I think uh, it's likely to be maybe ANC getting 30-something, 40% thereabouts, and, and the rest being shared by the other parties with uh, DA and Action SA most likely getting more than 50% together. That's interesting. So coalition politics coming in a big way to Johannesburg, potentially, but I guess it's it's which block, which grouping can work with others. Yes, and, yes. And the way you've explained it is EFF and ANC might be able to work together, but Action uh, SA and DA and uh, perhaps other smaller parties 
uh, the the counterbalance. Yeah, in fact, I've, I've mentioned the action SA and and in DA. That there's also a strong chance that EFF may win votes away from the ANC. But given the previous history that Hemen Mashaba has had with the EFF, might even form a coalition with them, actually. Isn't that interesting? So many people that I've interacted with uh, like Herman. They like what he stands for. They like his, his vibrancy and, uh, and his can-do attitude. But they are concerned that it would be a wasted vote. In terms of what? In terms of he's not going to get enough votes to make any difference. Are they misreading the, the, what's happening on the ground? I think, I think they are because, you know, the, and, and I, I think that message comes predominantly from, from the DA, right? And, and I would suggest that the challenge of the DA is that they've not really worked that hard enough in the, in the, in the black community to win more votes there. That, you know, they should not necessarily be dismissive of the criticisms that come from that community. And uh, I suppose the internal debates, deliberations on the liberal stance on advancing a liberal cause, an ideology of, of liberalism, I don't think is, 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 is relevant in the South African context. I think people are looking for what may, one may call practical politics, you know, pragmatic stuff. People are more interested in who's going to make things work, not what kind of ideology do you follow. I don't think that's uh, that's what matters in the communities anymore. The other big story is that the ANC is going to get a hiding in this election. Is that likely? Very, very likely. Again, in, in Gauteng, if we go back to the national elections, I think um, the population here voted 50% point something went to the ANC. So meaning 49% of voters voted for all other parties except the ANC. So it's got about 50%. You know, with what has transpired since then until now, so a substantial portion, definitely the majority votes in, in Gauteng are not going to go to the ANC. So what do we look out for nationwide on Monday? Because this is the last broadcast we've got yeah. ahead of the election. Yes. Uh, where are the bookmarks that we need to now be putting in for our a local election uh, well, 2021. Fo- focusing on the major areas, I think um, we're going to see a coalition government in in Joburg, probably not made up of the ANC, and we might see um, the same in Tswane, where the ANC may, may form a coalition government if the EFF wins a substantial number of votes. They might form a coalition between ANC and EFF there. And um, I noticed that the DA has been working extra hard on the ground in the Abeja. It looks like that's one metro that they, they really, really want to win outright. Helen Ziller has already said that. But I'm not sure what the politics is on the ground for the other parties in, in, in that part of the country. And, of course, you know, probably Cape Town will remain DA. And uh, ANC will still manage to keep Tequini, Durban. Action SA has got a very strong candidate in Tigwene. Uh, is there any chance that uh, that she's going to manage to pull a significant amount of votes away from the ANC and the DA? Not necessarily. Might win something, but I doubt very much that she's a strong enough candidate to win uh, the city for them, simply because, you know, of the... ANC background. We're talking about Dr. Makosi Koza here. So um, I, I think people will still regard her to some extent, associate her with the ANC. So we'll not be too sure about that. The, the profile of Hemen Mashaba in Johannesburg is very helpful to him because people have had the experience of living in the city under his mayorship. When and they liked was, him. Yeah, and they liked him when he was he was here. And, and he's raising the kinds of issues that resonate with the with the public here with the community of um, of Johannesburg so you know to it's 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 like a, he, he, as much as he's a politician but he's talking the stuff that people experience on a daily basis so he comes across as their own person you know the person who understands what the city needs and what needs to happen here in Joburg so he he goes into these elections with that uh, advantage would you make him the favorite to be the next mayor I would think so, yes. 
How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Good afternoon to Bernard Mostert, uh, Techie Town. Uh, well, former Techie Town, I suppose, Bernard, you could say, because at the moment it's no longer your business. It's the business that you and Brian van Hasty and, and your, your uh, colleagues sold to Steinhoff just before Steinhoff went bust. You've been working through the courts to try and win it back. And it was a big decision today from the judge, Judge Haley Slingers. Just talk us through it, those of us who are not as legally minded and uh, have been following the court case quite as closely as uh, those of you who have been involved in it. Thanks, Alec. Yeah, I think for the time being, not in our possession, but definitely still a business that we claim ownership of So, um, because we were defrauded of it. So today in the Western Cape High Court, Judge Slingers ruled that she will extend leave to appeal to Steinhoff and a group of alleged financial creditors, as she referred to them, um, to appeal to the SEA, her ruling that a South African court does have the jurisdiction to wind up an external company, a company that is operating in South Africa but registered abroad. So we are heading to Bloemfontein. You say the SEA, Supreme Court of Appeal? That's correct. And the judgment that she gave was very much in favor of uh, effecting the liquidation order that you're looking for? No, not not yet. So that process hasn't, we haven't even got to the merits of as to whether Steinhoff is solvent or insolvent. You know, it has been a almost four or five month long skirmish over this jurisdictional issue. And Steinhoff um, and others have, have attempted on many times to a point where it was called an abusive process in the courts to um, to convince her that her original ruling was not correct. I think it sets a large number of legal precedents, which is interesting and I think will benefit South African society going forward. So um, it is, you know, for us, it's part of the process. And we always knew that our case in its entirety will turn, will, will visit South Africa's highest court, you know. So this is another step in that journey. So you've been preparing for it, in other words? Yeah, we accepted that, you know, if we were successful ultimately with our liquidation effort, that it would be appealed. We um, accept that if the Steinhoff Global Settlement somehow survives, we think there's very low probability of that, that we would appeal that. So ultimately, um, it will stop in, in two places that start with a B, Bloemfontein and Bramfontein, I guess. You know, so we'll see if the Constitutional Court refused to hear Steinhoff on this matter. Um, the SCA will now hear it. And as I say, I think it's a, it's a good thing for society that we can address these ambiguities, you know, and also go into the history of Steinhoff. What happens next? So we will wait for the SCA to confirm that they will indeed hear the appeal. Um, and then after, once that appeal is heard, it's either the end of the matter um, all the matter progresses and, and we deal with the um, the issue of Steinhoff's solvency or insolvency. And then, you know, further to that, there's obviously still two cases that's going on. There's the, a challenge to the South African Reserve Bank in terms of the approval that was granted to Steinhoff in 2015 to leave South African shores, and which is very, it's an interesting process. It's very intriguing. And then there's the South African leg of the settlement, which faces a large number of headwinds with, with quite a lot of challenges. That's being heard in January of next year. How long is all of this taking? Alec, well, you know, there's a, if you think about it, I guess it started in 2009 when the fraud allegedly started. 2017, it, it came to a head with the resignation of, of Marcus Uester. Um and after that, the revelation of the fraud, all 106 billion rand of it. And now there's been 
this ongoing process to either obstruct um, justice or to affect the settlement that would keep everybody happy. But I, it seems the latter is, is a very difficult thing to achieve. My, my question really was how much longer before Steinhoff shareholders know that their company is bankrupt or has been liquidated or not? In other words, how long will this process go before this settlement agreement, if that's allowed to go forward, or indeed if you win uh, your attempts to have Steinhoff liquidated? If history repeats itself with appeals upon appeals and, and attempts to, to cast things in, in different lights, um, it's not going to be anytime soon. I think we accept at the very earliest that this would come to some form of resolution in 2025. So what's that? That's four years from now. 2025. So you're buying Steinhoff shares today. You're taking a punt that uh, Mostert and Van Hastien are not going to be successful in liquidating the company and you're taking a punt that there will be a settlement offer that at some point in time will be uh, distributed. But are you saying, are you telling us now that that money, that settlement offer can't be concluded until 2025 or can that go on independent of your court action? No, Alec, um, I don't think it can it can carry on until all court matters have been settled. Um, certainly, we will fight it to the very end. And, um, you know, there's so many things at play that, that for us and for others, um, it's, it's not going to be an issue of just being uh, shooed to the side, no pun intended. But people who are buying Steinhoff shares today must be doing it with some rational thought involved. Well, if you if you think about it, and you know, our mutual friend Pitful Jun would have been a good addition to this conversation. Although I don't think he would have gone there because you know he is an investor, and he, like you and I, we can't give um, people advice on which shares to buy. So, personally, I would submit that Steinoff's bonds are trading below par. That alone is an indication that there's no equity value in the company. And that even the bondholders accept that they won't receive a hundred cents in the rands ultimately. So I don't think that um, anybody that's buying Steinhoff shares at the moment buy it on any grounds of of value to be had down the line. But I guess uh, if you are sitting in that camp, at least uh, the judge, Judge Haley Slingers, did give the other side the leave to appeal the liquidation. Had she not done so, then it would have been presumably all over. No, not quite, because we would still have had to um, argue the merits of the insolvency. Um, and there's a host of intervening parties against and for liquidation, and, and it, it, there's, a, there's a lot of legal matter that has to be traversed. So I do think this delays the process. It doesn't uh, dispose of the liquidation application, and we'll forge forward with it as we were with our other court cases, but um, this effectively is another delay in, in hearing that and, and seeing the true state of this company. It sounds to me like the only people who are making money out of all of this are the lawyers. Well, listen, from, from your lips, um, but I think the people who stand to, to benefit the most is not the lawyers. Um, it's the, the debt holders that bought the debt for cheap after the fraud was revealed. They stand to to make multiples on their money, and that's um, and Judge Sling has referred to that in her ruling today, in which she said she refers to them as alleged creditors because they have not proven that they actually have a claim. Now that's interesting because if this liquidation continues, as it likely will, then um, those financial creditors might end up with no claim at all, and then you have a situation where there's a lot more money to go around for those who have been defrauded and who's not looking for to restore their businesses like us, you know, but you talk about people on the street, the PIC, etc. If you um, challenge the validity of 11 billion euros worth of debt and you think about a 280 billion rand collapse, um, the man on the street arguably can do a lot better if we ventilated these issues fully and transparently. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is EOH Chief Executive Stephen Fincoller, 
Definite signs of improvement in the numbers, with most important financial metrics improving on the prior period. What were you most pleased about in the numbers, and on the converse, what were you most unhappy or disappointed with? I suppose the most important thing for me is that we've made a profit, but we've turned our EBITDA into 100% cash. And that was very important because for the first time since I've been there, we've managed to pay all our operating expenses, our interest, our tax, our capex, and have some money left over. And uh, that's a big turning point for us. It means we can start investing in the business and we can start growth. We can start paying people properly. And that's, I, I just think, it's very exciting, especially to have done it so quickly because, as you know, interest eats you slowly. And so uh, it was re- really great we could do that and pay down, uh, you know, 430 million back to the, the banks. I suppose the thing that's been the most difficult is the economy has been very muted. You've seen from a lot of our competitors that in the same space they've had, uh, you know, very difficult years. Um, and so things like our hardware business and that have really struggled. Fortunately, I mean, we, we saw it coming and we, we moved hard. So, you know, while we've, you've seen a bit of dip in revenue, you've seen this in, increase in profit because um, we, we managed it, um, you know, ahead of the, the time. So I think the, the team have done a great job to manage a very difficult climate and come out with, you know, really decent numbers. I suppose the other big thing that's been very positive for me is our one-off costs are now negligible, which means, um, you know, with two clean audits, two years of unqualified audits, the auditors agree with us as well. And so uh, we can really put the past behind us now and really focus on the future. What distractions have the legacy issues cost in terms of time and focus on the business? And are you confident that these legacy issues are finally coming to a close and wrapping up? Yeah, so uh, it's, it's, it's been a huge focus. I mean, uh, you, was, you saw in the presentation I just talked about, you know, uh, now for the first time we can start thinking about the future, we can start thinking about partnerships, we can start thinking about long-term equity partners. We just haven't had time to do that. And um, that's been quite a big pity because I think uh, the last two years has been a great opportunity for consolidation in the RCT market. And uh, if we'd been you know, didn't have our debt and weren't focusing, looking backwards, we could have uh, actually done a bit more. But, you know, it is what it is, and we are where we are, uh, so we can, you know, we can move forward. But um, the real issue is that it frees up a lot of time now, and uh, I do think those legacy issues are behind us. We've closed out all the uh, what are called problematic contracts that were, you know, had big revenue but were actually bleeding money because they'd been costed wrong. We've got, we've uh, saw, sorted two of the SIU contracts out where there was over, over invoicing. The last one with the uh, Department of Water and, and Sanitation, we've been working with the SIU for quite some time now. We think that will be closed out soon. We know exactly what the issue is. It's fairly um, obvious, uh, so we know what that number should be. And um, then we've got one last issue with uh, SARS, which uh, we've also been through with our auditors and legal people, and we're pretty close to solving that as well. So, you know, once those two things are done, there's nothing more. And, um, and you know, Megan put a great slide in there to show what those legacy issues would look like in terms of cash flow over the next five years. Uh, so you can actually, you know, price them into the valuation. With the business having streamlined, disposing of assets to reduce debt, revenues are now lower as a result, but the debt's still largely unchanged, although still lower. Is an equity raise a possibility, or do you think that the business will be able to generate this free cash flow in order to trim the debt going forward? Uh, this is a great question. I mean, we did pay down $433 million this year of, of, of capital. We do have a sale that's been announced, which was Sabrin. It's going through all the various countries' competition commission. We've got all of them except Zimbabwe and Zambia at the moment. And when those go through, that brings in another 330-odd million, which will go straight to debt reduction. And then we've obviously got our information services sale that's uh, on, on in process. If you have a look, there's about 800 million of net asset value in the um, in the discontinued businesses. So you can expect something around that number to come 
you know, over the next 12 months to re- reduce debt. And then you're down to, you know, below two times EBITDA, which is now getting in the realms of being able to be managed. The biggest question for the shareholders, I think, will be, do they want to give a 10% return to the banks because that's what they're charging us? Or would they rather the 10% return came to them? Because at the end of the day, I've got ca- only so much cash flow. Some of it goes to pay for performance for my my staff, my people. Some will go to the financiers and some can go to the shareholders. And they must make that decision on what they want us to do. So we'll start those conversations now. There's a lot of things to you know think about that we've now got time. And you know over the next 6 to 12 months, we will sort that out. So this time next year, uh, hopefully we're done. Shareholders are now happy. Banks obviously already happy, but you know wanting us to go down a route, and then we're back to normal, you know, hundred percent normal. But at least we don't have the legacy problems anymore. So now that the legacy issues are behind you, and the progress of the last three years is going to start bearing fruit, as now, where are the growth avenues or areas for EIH in the next, in the short to medium term? Yeah, so there's there's a number. I mean, while we've while we hired Ziad Suleiman, who was at IBM for 13 years as their chief operating officer for Africa, was to bring in you know someone who's been in the ICT industry for a while. He understands the big OEMs um, um, strategies, and obviously that drives the ICT sector. So I'm very excited about that. So we'll start having a look at a few things in South Africa. One is customers that we don't have at the moment, and two is partnerships with people that we can actually create new product. But clearly we've got a you know a reasonable market share in South Africa. So growing it much faster than GDP is uh, quite difficult. Uh, so we want to take our centers of excellence where, we, where we've really got good excellence and lower price points like uh, our cloud and security business, like our app dev business, like our um, digital signatures business, for example, our OT business, operational um, a, a tech business that um, we use in the mining and the, the large manufacturing and, t- and take that into like in Egypt into the Middle East I mean I don't know if you know that region but if you take the Egypt, Egypt and Middle East uh, ICT spend it's two and a half times that of South Africa so it's a big market we have a small market share and so growing that into a reasonable market share is much easier ditto for Europe Clearly, in Europe, we're not going to try and compete with Accenture and Deloitte in the sort of top end of the market, but really go into that middle market, which for a suffering customer is probably a large customer. And uh, But just take the things where we think we have got a competitive advantage. And then the, the last bit is just around these platforms that we've got. Is they all scalable? They operate in the cloud, and you just got to move them and uh, – you know, make sure you're getting more and more customers on them because they scale quite quickly because their cost base is um, limited. So trying to do those three things at the same time um, and, uh, you know, um, slowly build out. So I'm pretty excited because we can now focus on it, which we haven't been able to. Stephen, how does load shedding affect your business or impact your business rather? Just a general question that affects all businesses, however differently and is topical at the moment. Yeah, listen, load shedding really affects the, the economy. I mean, you just think about how much extra time you spend driving around because the traffic lights are out or some businesses can't operate and, you know, can't make a cup of coffee because they can't afford a generator, things like that. I mean, we've had to really have a look at it quite carefully. It obviously adds cost in your business because you now have to be f- fully available for electricity, but fully available when it's out, so you, you know, it's generators, it's solar, it's batteries. So it puts a lot of non-productive cost in, I suppose. And, but the, the biggest thing is, is it really kills GDP. And, um, you know, we are a business that grows with GDP. So you're seeing people, instead of spending on RCT, having to spend on generators, batteries, backups and that. But our business specifically, we've made sure that uh, we've got operational hubs so if your home is out, you can go into a hub where we've got backup or vice versa. We've actually made sure people have enough backup for, you know, um, three hours of uh, load shedding so that they can still operate. Um, but, yeah, it's, listen, it's, 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 it's very difficult. It's not great for the country and we need to get a solution for it for sure. But I can see they're working on it. I'm pretty excited about this renewables program 
that's going on, I think that's going to be a huge benefit to us. Well, thanks for being with us through this week. As mentioned earlier in the program, we are not on air during public holidays, and that means we're also going voting on Monday, and uh, there'll be no power on Monday evening. We'll be back, though, as per usual, next Tuesday. Until then, from the team of Justin Rowe, Roberts, Jared Neves, uh, Nadia Swat, Dudu Masuku, our sound engineer, and yours truly, Alec Hogg, thanks for being in our company. Vote well. Cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.